This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on healthcare and data. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. Data and big data in healthcare is both important and topical. Big data has the potential to transform how we provide healthcare, but can also be problematic. There can be problems with how data is captured, cleaned or corrected, or with how we update data. BMJ is also playing an increasing role in this field. We now have our own BMJ dataset, which provides AI healthcare technologies with current, credible and AI-ready content on diagnosis, differential diagnosis, investigations and treatment. So we're very keen to ensure that we and others do a good and ethical job in all things data and digital. To give us more details about this whole area, we have on the line Professor Dipak Kalra, President of the European Institute for Innovation Through Health Data and former Professor of Health Informatics at UCL. And importantly, Dipak is a member of our new expert committee on ethics and artificial intelligence, which advises us on issues related to avoiding harm in AI and lots of other things. So Dipak, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is data? Kieran, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to to be with you today on this discussion. So when it comes to health data, whether we're looking at clinical care or research, we've historically thought particularly about clinical data created by clinicians in electronic health record systems, whether it's hospital or GP. And we need already to be thinking quite broadly about that landscape because it will include increasingly test results like genetic information, so biomarkers and gene profiles. Radiology nowadays means very complicated scans and other medical images. But beyond that, we are really excited by including within that concept of health data, patient-generated data, whether it's stuff from apps, wearables, sensors that are increasingly going to play a role in healthcare decision-making. And then just finally, let's not forget data that is not classically health, but health-impacting, like pollution data, transport data, Uh, things that are outside the sphere of the health system but influence the health of our patients. All of that today could be considered health data. Thank you, uh, Deepak. Great introduction. What is big data? Well, I, I think that we probably need to treat it as having two definitions, really. There's a formal definition, which was originally, I think, coined by IBM, but I I may be wrong in attributing them to it. And it's data that has certain properties to do with its scale, its speed, its, its complexity, and so on. And so there are relatively formal definitions of big data. But when I hear it used in the healthcare, health research context, people really mean large scale data. Uh, What they really are talking about, and it's especially in research, the fact that today we need to learn from data that's drawn from multiple environments together, whether that's the different data sources I just described, or whether it's simply 
data, for example, from hospitals, but multiple hospitals from multiple countries, data needs to be analysed together in order to have enough patients with particular, perhaps rare characteristics and rare events that we can start to draw statistically relevant findings from them. So I feel it's maybe not helpful for us to focus too much on the computer science definition of big data and really think more about large scale data, which is where I think the energy lies, the momentum lies, the excitement lies. Okay. And could you give us an example of that, of, of, of large scale data, which can be used for the purposes you've suggested? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll pick as an example uh, a European project called EDEN, E-H-D-E-N, and it is a European Evidence Health Data Network project. It's a European project that is connecting a large number of hospitals, disease registries and other data providers, cohorts, in a network that allows for something called federated querying. That means you compose a research question and it gets distributed through the network, executed at each site, and only the results of the query, that is the frequency distribution, patient numbers, if you like, are returned. It's a great method because, and it's gaining traction all over the world as a way of doing big scale analytics, because you don't move large numbers of patient records around, you avoid a number of the concerns the public would have about their data traveling everywhere. But you're able to perform a query on perhaps millions of patient records and get findings that would be almost impossible to get at a single site or even in a single country. Thank you. That's very, very helpful. Tell us about the importance of data capture. Well, we, we have a challenge that when we look to reuse routinely collected clinical data, the quality of that data is pretty variable. What I mean by that is there are parts of it that are in free text, some bits are in structured and coded information, but busy clinicians who are entering data, fast and furious, rushing from patient to patient, don't have the time to really enter high quality data always. And we end up, therefore, with data that's difficult to reuse. That could be at the patient level, where a decision support tool that would help avoid a drug-drug interaction uh, doesn't perform correctly because a drug hasn't been correctly entered, or is it described in free text but not in a coded form. So data capture is vital uh, as one of those building blocks of ending up with a fantastic data landscape. We do need to invest in helping clinicians and I hope in future patients to be trained in data entry so that they really do care and have enough time and good enough systems into which to enter high quality data. I mean, to me, that's the big, that's the big data, data capture challenge is to get quality. Okay, thank you. Um... That's helpful. And people talk about data cleaning. What does that mean? Well, it's not something that you would naturally come across in clinical care. So as you wander about the corridors of a hospital, you won't often find people cleaning data. 
But when you want to extract data from environments like hospital electronic health records, GP systems, where perhaps the data is of variable quality, statisticians will undertake transformations on the data that will help them to plug the gaps. For example, if you have a patient group where you've extracted all the patients taking insulin and you find that some of those have a diagnosis of diabetes in the conditions column of a table, but some are missing it, you could probably look at the occurrence of an insulin prescription and or some blood glucose levels and say that's a missing value, but really this patient has diabetes. So that's an example. You may find examples where people have coded information to varying levels of granularity. So some people have put in a very precise diagnosis. Others have put in a coarse grain diagnosis, myocardial infarction or left anteroceptal defect or something like that. And you might want to say, for the purpose of our analysis, let's aggregate these to a relatively coarse grained value so we can do some homogenous analysis. And then perhaps even beyond my knowledge, there are more sophisticated statistical tools that can be applied. So data cleaning is about correcting for poor quality data. It can also include mapping data between terminology systems. For example, if you have some data coded in SNOMED CT and some data coded in other terminology systems, you want to map it into one so it's easier to analyze. So sometimes that's also considered part of cleaning. Okay, thank you. And what if you see a, a result which just doesn't make sense, say if a, a blood pressure is recorded as a thousand over eighty? Um, <laughs> well, we do see we do see all sorts of things. Me and my colleagues in the institute do some data quality work, and we do find things. So, for example, silly things like height and weight where you, you, you go to a BMI and you find a, a body mass index that is totally impossible. And when you look at the raw data, you realize somebody has put the height and the weight in the wrong, color, in the wrong fields. So there's a true height in the weight and a true weight in the height. So we do see things like this. Um, you can correct the individual needles in haystacks if you want. But what we are encouraging our colleagues to do in, in clinical practice, and it's often with data managers rather than busy clinicians, is to look at their data, see whether there are some systematic quality issues that are arising and saying, well, can we look at what lies behind that? Is this perhaps a poorly designed screen? Is this perhaps that the computing facilities in an environment are insufficient. People are scribbling on bits of paper and keying in the data much later uh, when they have time, and that means they compromise and don't put everything in because they're rushed, etc. cetera. Uh, or is it a training issue? Or is it to do with other issues in the database? That's, that's my concern, is how can we use the learning rather than worrying about individual data points? Let's use them to discover where are the systematic errors and help a healthcare organization to have better data. Okay, thank you. And tell us a bit about the process of updating data, if, if you can, Deepak. So updating data, uh, we, we have two or three things to, to think about here. It's a, in a way that's a broad term, 
perhaps in, in a research context, the biggest thing that is occupying people's minds is how to ensure that a data set can be kept up to date if you're using it for research. An example would be that you extract data from a number of healthcare environments about patients being treated with a certain disease, uh, for a certain disease on a certain drug, and you get the data at a certain point in time. And what you would like to be able to do is have incremental updates on a monthly, quarterly basis so that you track how these patients' health situations evolve over time. But rather than going back each time to the source and getting the whole lot, you just want an incremental update. You want a little bit of information that says, please send me the last month on these patients. And then you need to be able to link the update patient by patient to the correct original record so that you put the, the new month's data into the record of each correct patient with the historic data. So that's the commonest way in which we think about updating data. Uh, a totally different area, uh, which I'll just mention uh, for completeness, is version management. It's not uncommon in a busy clinical environment for data entry errors to be made or for something to be changed because fresh insights means the diagnosis you thought was true has now been replaced by a fresh diagnosis. And in those cases, you want to modify the electronic health record either to correct an error or to provide an update. So that's a different kind of change you want to make to the data for the purposes of better patient care. But where here the issue is not linkage, the issue is version management and version tracking. It's important always that when you version track the data, you have kept a copy of the erroneous previous data, even if it's no longer visible to a to the, to the ordinary user, that it's inside the system in case there's ever a need to investigate what might have been wrongly done when people looked at the erroneous data, thought it was correct, and made decisions that they need to then defend later. Okay, thank you. And let me give you another potential use case. Say, if a patient is admitted with suspected pneumonia, and that's put as the putative diagnosis on day one. But then three days later, it turns out actually they've got pulmonary embolism and they don't have pneumonia at, at all. It's not that the original data was erroneous. I do, well, I, I don't know. You could argue it was or it wasn't. It, it was thought to be correct at the time, um, but then it turned out to be another diagnosis. How? Yeah, I think... I think that's very different because it's not really a data issue. I mean, what you've described is actually correct data entry on two occasions. Uh, what you're looking at is evolution of clinical thinking, uh, evolution of clinical insight. And that is normal. I mean, clinical practice is full of that all the time. Um, we shouldn't regard that as an aberration or a strange thing. We should see that as part of normal, good clinical practice that you keep the brain switched on, you keep observing your patient, and if the story unfolds differently to what you expect, you rethink. That is excellent clinical practice. The record has to show it, because it would clearly be silly for the original diagnosis in the emergency department to be modified to show pulmonary embolus. 
uh, as if that was always the original thinking. And then to show for two days afterwards, this patient was given totally inappropriate treatments for a pulmonary embolus. Because, of course, they were given totally appropriate treatments for pneumonia. Okay, thank you. Tell us about data provenance. What is data provenance and why is it important? Well, if you think about data captured in a single location, let's take a GP, a single-handed general practitioner who's working in a practice who opens up the record on a patient and sees their historic details. Apart from the date, everything else about that record is the same as today. It's the same author, the same location, the same system. The moment you want to share data between multiple players, for example, between a hospital and a GP or a patient moves and they go to a different location, you need the data to have more information about its original context. Where was it captured? By whom? Knowing the name of the person isn't good enough because if your patient moves to Australia, the patient isn't going to know that this particular named individual is a consultant psychiatrist or a GP or a cardiac surgeon. So there's a lot of data that needs to go along with the clinical observations to help explain who created it, what's their background, where were they located, what time was it done, was it changed uh, in the ways you described earlier. All of that is provenance information. Where did this data originate? What was the context in which it was created? The moment you want to share it outside of its birthplace, if you like, you need to include that. And also in research terms, you often need to have some evidence of the basis on which a research finding was made. So provenance data is needed there too. Okay, thank you. Moving on to health data for research, can you tell us a bit about scaling up the interoperability and reuse of health data for research? Well, the starting point of that answer is really that what we need in terms of interoperability for patient care and research is the same, which is that we don't mind that data is captured in different systems. We do need a flourishing competitive market of systems. But what we need is that once the data has been captured in a system, it can be shared in a standardized way. And that's important for continuity of care, safety of patient care, as well as for research. So the first point really is that interoperability standards are vital right across the care and research landscape. But if we want to pool data, and as I was saying earlier, perhaps hundreds of hospital data points from multiple hospitals in multiple countries, if they are all stored and structured in totally different ways, it is a nightmare to try to harmonize that data before you can analyze it. So interoperability standards are vital for research as well. Okay, thank you. And can you give us some broad examples of good and bad innovations you've seen? Um, not asking you to name names, but more about kind of broad approach approaches taken in innovations. That's a tough question. <laughs> so the, the good examples are really 
Uh, well, some examples I've been seeing, uh, and I'm going to pick deliberately the pharma industry because I know that they often get um, in, in clinical and patient circles sometimes some negativity. So I'll pick pharma as an example of good practice. When I'm working with pharma companies about research and drug development uh, and safety, for example, what I'm seeing at the moment is that there is a huge amount of interest in how they can work alongside healthcare organizations to query electronic health records in order to better determine the fit of a new drug to the relevant and suitable patients interested in unmet health need or situations where clinical outcomes are not being well achieved and where there might be the scope for a better medicine. Uh, we have seen in recent two years, but probably a pharma industry shining rather uh, wonderfully in relation to vaccine development, where they have really pushed a lot of, of boats out to get us vaccines fast. So that's an example of good practice in innovation. I see that with medical device manufacturer. I see that also with algorithm development. But if I was to look for perhaps a downside, it's probably not unscrupulous behavior. But I think there is a passion at the moment for jumping on bandwagons. And AI is one of those, artificial intelligence. And this is where I look forward to working with you, Kieran, in the BM, in, in your uh, new group. Um, but when I speak to people developing artificial intelligence, often what they are looking at is what are the exciting computer science challenges? Uh, where can I get hold of data to train a new algorithm? And so what they're looking at, honestly, is the opportunity for creating AI. And what I feel is a bit dispiriting sometimes is that what we are not seeing as much is looking across healthcare for where are their decision-making dilemmas that clinicians face today with their patients, where AI could help them to sharpen the quality, accuracy, or timeliness of those decisions. In other words, can we target AI development where we are desperate to have help rather than where it's easy to find the data and develop shiny AI solutions. So that's not maybe bad practice, but it's about how can we direct research efforts towards where it's needed. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. Back to the data and back to, to hospitals or maybe primary care organizations. How ready are they to generate data? Well, I think this is a real holy grail question. I'm glad you've raised it, but it's a difficult one. If you look at the average busy clinician who is grabbing records to see a patient, they can often make do with a mixed environment of structured and coded data, free text letters and reports they quickly scan read. So when it comes to looking after patients, they do okay, not brilliantly with pretty mediocre data. So when we come to analyze the data, we then find it's wanting in ways I described earlier. So one of my missions is to help healthcare organizations to care more about the data that they create. And for that, I first got to get them to care about using the data they create because they're not gonna care about making data for others to use. They've gotta care about creating data that they will use. Now, you know that in 
in, 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 in the UK as an example country, clinical audit has been a topic of, what, 30 years of evolution at least. And I can remember from my early GP days leading in East London, a clinical audit group, where we were encouraging GPs to look at their data, understand where they're doing well and not so well so they can implement improvements. I find, unfortunately, still when I look in hospitals, that it's really patchy. Are they learning from their own data to maximize the quality of care to their patients? The answer is it varies hugely. So if I'm looking at how can I persuade healthcare organizations to care more about their data, I've got to first ask them to care about looking at their data, learning from their data, and then they will discover that that rather hybrid environment of free text and codes and patchy quality doesn't enable them to learn well enough, and then they'll be motivated. Okay, thank you. What about the public? How important is it to explain the, the value of research using health data to the public? Oh, Kieran, you keep asking me really, really good questions. I don't think I can think of anything more important than that. Um, the public have concerns about how their data is used. And of course, they should be concerned to make sure that when their data is used outside of the routine care delivery that they experience, that it's used in good, trustworthy ways. But even if you could promise people their identity is safeguarded, we know that the public, and this is true right across the world from surveys, have a view about ethical use of data. They don't just care about privacy, although they do. They also care that their data should be used ethically. That means it should be used for purposes that bring back into the health environment improvements that might not benefit them personally, but benefit patients in general. And so it's really important that the public know how and why data is used, what happens when their data is used, what's the outcome of a data use, and what eventually becomes the health beneficial value back into the health system. Is it a drug? Is it a safety alert? Is it a better care pathway? Is it improved training for staff? Is it a more efficient health de you know, department in a hospital, for example? Doesn't matter what it is, it should be health beneficial. The public get very little awareness of how their data gets used. There are thousands and thousands of data uses occurring for which the public doesn't ever get insight. If we want them to buy in to health data use, to increasingly support data use rather than be nervous about data use all the time. We have to bring them on the inside of that. We have to help them to understand how data is used and even to be consulted about data use. Okay, thank you. So you actually started to answer the next question, which is about insights, insights from data to the front line, data to practice if you like, and how we can do this. And you've given um, some examples of that, um, but maybe you could expand a bit about how we might tell, tell the story. Yeah, I mean, the thing I'm frustrated at most is how little it still occurs. You know, we're collecting more and more data electronically. Computers are getting smarter and better. We can do more learning, but are we doing more learning? And then how do we get the, the learning back? So sometimes 
uh, a care organization will make an insight. Sometimes multiple care organizations together will discover how a particular care pathway is better than another care pathway. But it seems to take us years to translate these insights into updated clinical guidelines, educated practitioners who then practice in a new way. We need to turn that cycle around into, you know, maybe minutes is unrealistic, but into days and weeks, maybe months, not years and decades, which is where we are today. We've shown with COVID vaccines that if we really, really pull out all the stops, we can get approval for a societally valuable solution rapidly. But a lot of other medicines, a lot of other devices, algorithms and so on, take many years to get approved. Approved partly from a safety point of view, which is fair enough. But then health systems take a long time to endorse them for use inside the health system. I don't think the pro there is a problem with data quality. There's a problem with doing analysis. There's a problem with learning from the data. Yes, I've spoken about all those. But there is a human and organizational process with translating innovative knowledge into real life change. And I don't know how we tackle that. That may be more for you than me to try and attack, because I think you're in a very good position to try to help catalyze that translation back into transformed health systems. One of the problems we do face, if I could quickly mention a barrier, is our reimbursement models. You know, patient empowerment, patient engagement, uh, helping patients to be players in disease self-management. No one gets reimbursed for that easily. And that means the investment in bringing the patient on board is an example of digital transformation. We do very slowly. Okay, thank you. And I guess the the what you're saying a couple of minutes ago does suggest maybe the need for partnerships um, in health data, because it's unlikely that one stakeholder in all of this could do everything themselves. Um, do you think that there is a role for partnerships in, in this field? Well, I would say even more emphatic than you. I think all of the problems that can be solved by single stakeholders have been solved. <laughs> I think we've run out of the easy things to do. We've only got the hard things left. And I think that the only solution to making transformations in the way we handle data, the way we learn from data, the way we use knowledge and translate it back, it's multi-stakeholder collaboration. That means players in the health ecosystem, players in the research ecosystem, and importantly, patients and their caregivers and families all need to work together. And organizations that are in that kind of cross-cutting role, such as yours, have an important role to play as well, and, and mine, my institute as well. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dipak. Normally I ask, are there any other common questions you get asked, but I'm not gonna ask it now because I feel we've just scratched the surface and um, and it's just a matter of time before we, we get you get you back. But But thank you very much and thanks to all our listeners for listening. We hope that this has been helpful. And we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into practice so you can have more informed conversations with colleagues and patients about data in healthcare. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to look at what BMJ is doing in this field and find out 
how we're powering healthcare intelligence with the BMJ dataset. Thank you once again.